Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So, uh, not long ago, we were in a, another country, and um, there's a group of us. We, we got to know this, these new friends who minister there, and they became family to us. And um, one of the days, we were sitting around their living room, and we were talking and laughing and, and enjoying one another's company. And um, somehow, I don't know how, but we got, uh, we got telling stories. And one of the things that came up, um, there's a bit of a, a healthy disagreement between Sherry and I in the living room. And um, it, it went back, and I, and I ended up having to share the story of when, um, in September, when Sherry and I were in, in London, um, the time that the queen died. Um, we were in Liverpool and we were, we were in Liverpool and Sherry had gone back to the ship because we were on a cruise and, and uh, I stayed in Liverpool for a little while because I was trying to find uh, a bottle of Mountain Dew. And Mountain Dew is not nearly as accessible outside our country, our great country, as it is the rest of the sad world. But... Um, uh, so I was looking for uh, Mountain Dew and so I was going around Liverpool and I was walking by a kind of a, a like a, a royal uh, government building and there was this sign that said, um, enter here to sign the Queen's Book of Condolences. And so I was like, that's like, I, I mean, I, I, I never thought that I would do something like that before, but I was like, I, that's something I could do. And it's kind of a once in a lifetime experience. And so I, I headed into this building. It was these big, you know, grand and beautiful gates and this big building. And so kind of went into this old building and and there were signs showing me where to go. And so there's this room that they had set up with, with a kind of a, a, a display to the queen and, and all of these books with pens that you could sign and, and write a message. And I'm sure that King Charles will read every one. And, and so I was thinking very, very much like, what do I want to say? What would I want to say to the queen or say about the queen? And so I felt I came up with just a very significant and deep uh, thing to write. And so I, so I wrote, and then I was there for a little bit, and then I went back, got my Mountain Dew, and, and headed back to, to the ship. And um, I said to Sherry when I saw her, I was like, hey, I signed the Queen's Book of Condolences. And she looks at me, and she goes, did you sign my name? <laughs> and immediately, I betrayed Jesus Christ in that moment. And I said, yes. And she looked at me, she goes, you didn't. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, no, here, this, I, we have never spoken to each other about what you would want to say to royalty. I don't know what you would want to say. I don't know how you'd want to say it. We've never talked about that. I didn't want to misrepresent you in what I said and just like assume that you wanted to say the same thing. And she was like, do you know how many cards and books that I've signed for you? I was like, well, that's fine, but, but we've never talked about royalty, so how, how would I possibly know? 
This is for you. I don't want to misrepresent you. And so she saw it differently than I did. And, and, and so we, we told this story to our friends. And so Sherry says in that living room, she's like, okay, how many people in this room think that I was right, that Sherry was right, and I wronged her? And so um, last, last service, like one lady in the church like raised her hand. I was like, I'm not asking you. But, <laughs> but anyway, so, so the people in the room start raising their hand on Sherry's side. And, and now the, the couple's house that we were saying that, they're from Canada, okay? So you need to understand they're from Canada. And, and so Colin from Canada is now my friend. And I, I, make, I look over at Colin in this room where everyone's, and Colin's like this. <laughs> and I make eye contact with him and immediately he's. <laughs> and I look at him I'm like, Colin, you betray me. And he's like, oh no, I mean, I, mean, I, I think you're both right. And they look over at Gabe, who's there, and, and Gabe's like, I abstain. And Colin's like, why didn't I abstain? I learned nothing from Canada. And so, like, like and, and so, like, I just felt this deep betrayal. I mean, I thought Colin was my friend. I thought he was for me, yet he, he voted this. Now, to, to just be full disclosure, um, last service, uh, Sherry was in the last service, and as I was walking off the stage after I preached, I get, a, I get this text from Sherry. You told that whole story at the beginning in order to make betrayal the point, and you chose Colin's betrayal of you to make that point? <laughs> I've heard it both ways. <laughs> so that's not exactly an issue in our marriage that has been settled as of this point. I don't think this will help. <laughs> I, share, I share that because um, the, the passage that we're in in Acts, Acts chapter nine, is, is, we've, is last week we, we walked through Saul on what I would call the road to discipleship, but the destination was Damascus. And, and he has this encounter with Jesus. And, and where we left off last week was, was that he, his eyes are open and he is baptized and he breaks his fast. Publicly, he, he identifies with Jesus. And, and I think betrayal is a very important thing in this story. I think betrayal is a really important story in the story of Jesus and in our story. And I know that's a really big and significant and heavy and maybe even a triggering word but, but I want us to embrace that this morning because I think it's important. See, there's, there's two primary responses to Saul when he was baptized and he broke his fast. Fear was one of the primary responses, and that was from the Christian community, the believers. They were afraid of him because they know his reputation. And as we probably all are, are aware, reputations are really hard to change, aren't they? I wouldn't say impossible, but really hard. Uh, and so they knew who he was and, and the believers, their primary re reaction to Saul, even from a distance, was, was they were afraid of him. The other primary reaction to Saul was hatred to the point of death. The Jews 
saw Saul as a betrayer of his people. He betrayed the Jews. He betrayed God the Father. He betrayed his tribe. He betrayed his family because he now confesses Christ as Lord. And in the, in, in their... And they hated that so much and he betrayed them so badly that they wanted him dead. Oftentimes, we read that in the life of Paul. You see, Saul emerges as the great betrayer from the Jewish perspective, and rightfully so. Because put yourself in their shoes. Saul, emer he, he, he had been, from the very get-go, a defender of pure Judaism pure and, and, and right religion. He was entrusted as a Pharisee and now as, as, as an activist going out and, and rooting out Christians in the, in this, in the synagogues. He was, a, 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 he was trusted with Israel's story to keep it on the right path and to keep it clean and pure and righteous. And now he's living and preaching a different narrative that threatens the very foundations of Judaism as they have come to believe it. You see, Saul's faith in Jesus clearly looks like betrayal of his own people, his own family, including the betrayal of their story and their destiny. And I want us, as we walk through this passage, I want us to think about how that is not only true for Saul, but it must be true for us as well. That loyalty to King Jesus is a betrayal of our people, oftentimes our families, our tribe, our ethnicity, all of that. Because Jesus wants us all, all of our loyalty. And so as we walk through this passage, I want you to kind of watch for what that looks like. Acts chapter nine, starting in the second part of verse, verse 19. Again, Saul is now able to see. He's been baptized. He's broken his fast. And we pick up and it says, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I want us to take note of Saul's behavior. Immediately, the text says, he got baptized, broke his fast, and immediately he went out and started preaching Jesus as Savior, as King as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And, he, and, and, and so there was, no, there was no like, there's no like downtime. There was no like, well, I wanna make sure I'm, 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 I'm doing this right. Or, you know, he was, there was this urgency and this desire and immediately he went out and he preached 
Jesus. Also of note is where did he go to preach Jesus? He went to the synagogue. Do you, anybody catch the irony there? Saul is literally carrying a letter from the chief priests that says he has the authority to arrest anyone who is doing exactly what he's doing. Like he has a letter in his pocket saying that he has the authority to arrest himself for the activity he is currently doing. Turn himself in. And, and so he's in the synagogue and he's preaching Jesus Christ. And, and again, remember the, 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 primary, uh, the primary responses to, to Saul? One was fear. And so here in the synagogue, here's what's happening. There are some people who have come to believe in Jesus in the synagogue and, and the people plus the rest of the people are saying, hey, we know who this is. This is Saul who is a righteous Jew and he hates Christians. Those who follow the way follow Jesus. And he's actually here to arrest them. That's the guy who we're talking about. And he's here preaching Jesus. This is weird. So, so like his reputation precedes him and there's some confusion because of his behavior and his words as he's speaking in the synagogue. But what's interesting is that the people agree that there's something going on with Saul. And it says that as he's preaching in the synagogue, that he's proving Jesus was the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Jews have been waiting for. Like his, his power and authority and argument and preaching and, and, and passion is all saying, not only saying that Jesus is the Christ, but it's proving. And, and people have a hard time arguing them. The, those, the Jews in the, in the synagogue are arguing with them and they're like, we're not getting anywhere because he, he's, he's convincing us and giving us proof that's hard to deny that Jesus is who he said he was. And, and so obviously the spirit is, is growing and working in the life of Saul. And so then, and then in the text, we, we see in verse 23, it says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. First of all, we kind of have to get an idea of what many days had passed are uh, in Galatians chapter one, Paul actually gives of his own accord a little bit of information to what's happening right here. And it's, it's, it's actually super helpful. Uh, in Galatians one, Paul writes, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. He's talking specifically of his time in Damascus. So after many days, what Luke summarizes in Acts, Paul gives the details in Galatians, and so that many days was three years that he spent in Damascus preaching in the synagogue. So over those three years, the Jewish leaders and the Jews in the synagogue in Damascus were getting more and more frustrated with, with Saul and his teaching. 
And so over around year three, they were pretty much, you know, like that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And they were like, we're done with him. We're going to kill him. So it wasn't just a threat of like, I could kill that guy. It was, we're going to kill him and this is how we're gonna do it. But what's interesting, it wasn't just the Jews that wanted Saul off the scene and dead. It was also the neighboring nation and the king of that nation. You see, Damascus at the time bordered what was known as Arabia. And in actually, again, in, in, in another of, of Paul's letters, uh, the letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this. Listen to what he says. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying at Damascus, the governor under the king Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This king that, that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians is actually the king of Arabia. In scripture, he's described as the king of the Nabataeans, which is this area that was known as Arabia that was literally at Damascus. And so the king of Arabia actually had some officials who were stationed in Damascus. And Saul's preaching in the synagogue in Damascus was causing such a stir, it was causing tr trouble for the king of the Nabataeans in Arabia. And he was done with Saul as well. And so this plot to kill Saul was not just the Jews, but it was the Jews and the king of Arabia and his, his people. And so when, when, when it says that, that it says that there was, the Jews were, were watching all the gates, that was actually the Arabian army members at that time. They were watching all of the gates in Damascus, watching for Saul because they were gonna be kind of the heavy and kill Saul as he was leaving the city. So it's interesting that Again, we see this thing when confronted with the treachery of betrayal, we do what we need to do to protect our kingdoms and the purity of what we believe. So the Jews joined with pagans across the border to work together to get rid of a common enemy of Saul who's preaching in the name of Jesus. Remember the, the, the second primary response to Saul's conversion, hatred, hatred to the point of death. Both the Jews and the pagan world wanted Saul dead. And, 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 so, and so it says that, that God revealed in some way, I don't know how, but God was watching out for Saul. And so God reveals to Saul and, and the church there in Damascus of this plot and the specificity of it. And so it says that Saul's disciples hatched a plan to lower him out of a window uh, on the wall out in a basket so that he can go back to Jerusalem. Interestingly, in those three years that Saul was preaching in the synagogue, there was great fruit of people converting, Jews converting to Christianity, enough so that there was a group of disciples in Damascus who had been saved by, by Jesus through Saul's ministry. 
And so those people get together and say, we need to get you out of the city so you can go back to Jerusalem. But there's this plot, and so we need to get, get you out of here. So, so that's how, how that worked out, and, and they, they get him out. And so now we, we, we get to this point where Saul has left Damascus and he heads back to Jerusalem. And, and this is what, what the text says. It says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Again, primary reaction to Saul and his conversion. The believers in Jerusalem, which is where all the apostles were, didn't believe that Saul actually loved Jesus as they loved Jesus and was on Jesus' side. And so they didn't trust him and they would not meet with him because of his reputation. He went out from Jerusalem with letters to say he could arrest Christians. In fact, he was standing there when the mob killed Stephen, one of their friends, one of their family members, and Saul was there approving and egging them on. And so maybe Saul's playing the long game. He's for three years been embedded in a Christian, a Christian group so that eventually he can, he can actually get to the leaders in Jerusalem and he can turn them over and then this whole movement can be wiped out. I said that there's two primary responses to Saul, that of fear and that of betrayal. But there's an exceptional response. And so far we've seen it only in, in the life of one person and now about to be two people. When Saul was in Damascus, Jesus who met Saul also met with Ananias. And when Jesus met with Ananias in a vision, he said, we know, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to tell him that I've sent you and he'll know that. I want you to help him to see again. And so, as we remember, Ananias had this argument saying, no, 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 I know who this guy is. He responded with fear. But Jesus then says to him as he gives his reasons why he shouldn't go, Jesus says to him, he says, Saul is my instrument to the, to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so with that, Ananias went and he said, brother Saul, accepting what God had said and believing even though his eyes and Saul's reputation told him differently. Now, for us, there's a lot of things that maybe we read in scripture or we kind of have a pretty good feeling that God wants us to do, but we don't do it because it's just really hard to do and it's hard to believe. But, but I would imagine, think of the thing that maybe would be the hardest thing for you to actually follow through and do and Jesus came to you in a vision and it told you, I want you to do this. And you were like, well, I don't know if I can do that. And he said, no, 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 this is why. And gave you some backstory and, and information that he's only giving you. Chances are good. You'd be like, okay, I, even though this seems crazy, I'm gonna do this. That was the benefit that Ananias had. Enter in Barnabas, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them 
how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name, in the name of Jesus. This is a different kind of betrayal. Because I think not only is Saul seen as a betrayer to the Jewish people, but I think Barnabas is now questioned as a betrayer because he's bringing this person that we clearly know is going to destroy us. He's trying to bring him into the fold. That feels like betrayal, doesn't it? That feels significant. And, and, and so, so Barnabas brings Saul in and he goes to the apostles and he says, look, I wanna vouch for this guy. Now Barnabas wasn't in Damascus. He had heard what they all heard. You know what Barnabas didn't have? A visitation by Jesus telling him, hey, I need you to trust that this is a real thing with Saul. He didn't have that. He didn't have the benefit that Ananias had. All he had, all Barnabas had, was the Holy Spirit living inside of him. That's all he had. It's interesting, Barnabas had no more and no less than we have for our everyday decisions, both the big and the small ones. Isn't it interesting to you that Barnabas, not even the, the key high leader of the church in Jerusalem, was the one who believed what God said and stood for what God wanted. When Peter and John and James were still staying at arm's length saying, nope, can't trust this. Has that ever made you think, why? What's the difference? What's going on? I think that Barnabas' exceptional response to Saul was directly related to the fullness of the Spirit in his life. Now, I wanna make this really, really clear. When you receive Jesus as Savior, when you come to Christ for forgiveness of your sins, you get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you, lives inside of you, and does not depart from you. You have the Holy Spirit, period, end of story. Here's where it gets tricky. Those who have the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit does not equally have. What I mean by that is each person who has the Holy Spirit at any given time is differently surrendered to his desire and his power and authority and leading in their life. Here's what I think it's like. If you and I were a furnace, when you become a Christian, your pilot light's lit. So every person who knows Jesus has a pilot light of the Holy Spirit. But how much does a furnace in a room with a pilot light affect its environment? I mean, it's capable, it has a lit pilot light, but it doesn't do much of anything. Like it's not hot, it's, 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 it's not really doing anything but there's definitively a pilot light in it versus a furnace that has no pilot light, right? It is distinctly different. 
What happens when you turn the thermostat up to 90? You see this flame come up and the furnace inside of the furnace is engulfed in flame and it, it radically alters the environment that it's in. I think in a lot of ways, and you decide this for yourself, and I think in a lot of ways, we live much of our lives with the pilot light on, but we don't turn the temperature up. We live with the security of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we do not affect our environment because it's just the pilot light. And we don't give over full authority and control to the Spirit in our lives. And so basically what I think God is saying and what God does here, God is a, the Spirit's a roaring fire in the life of, of, of Barnabas. And in that moment, in the lives of the disciples in the Jerusalem church and in the apostles, the Spirit was contained as a pilot light. That's why they didn't believe what God said about Saul. And you see, we have that same thing in us. So I think a question to ask yourself today is, am I living day to day with the Holy Spirit functioning as a pilot light that I can control and turn up and down when I feel like I need him? Or have I ripped the thermostat off the wall and there is an uncontrollable fire inside of me of the Holy Spirit filling me and moving in me every day and every moment? Where are we? What do we look like? And, and, so, and so Barnabas brings, brings Saul to the, to the disciples of the apostles. And again, uh, Paul gives the details because again, Acts is a summary of the, what happened in the early church. So he doesn't get into the, the minutia of the details, but Paul mentions this in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 11 again. And let me, let me, read, that, let me read that again a, a little bit further. Uh, he says, or sorry, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter one, and uh, Paul writes, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now listen to what, what Luke writes in Acts. He says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, Saul, went out, went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. When, when Luke summarized and said, Barnabas took him to the apostles, he did, but the only apostles who saw and met Saul were Peter and James. So they heard the story and they're like, okay, well, we're gonna accept this I, I wonder if they responded like Ananias and said, brother Saul, or they were kind of like, Saul with, with like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna watch and we're gonna evaluate and decide if we can trust you over time. But it says at that point, for 15 days, for two weeks, it says for a time, he went in and out of Jerusalem preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus. That for some time was about two weeks that, that Saul did this there in Jerusalem. And then it, and then it says this, it says, and, 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 and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Anybody remember why that might be important or remember something about the Hellenists in Jerusalem? The Hellenists were Greek 
culture, Jewish people. And back a few chapters in Acts, we run into these people. They were the Hellenists who were part of, it described the, the synagogue of the freedmen. They were cultural Jew, culture, they were Jews who were culturally Greek. Do you remember who they had a problem with? They had a problem with Stephen. Because Stephen was preaching Jesus and the Hellenists in the synagogue of the freedmen were very upset about that. And they were the ones who stoned Stephen to death while Saul held their coats. Like the Hellenists were like, hold my coat. And then, you know, they stoned him. Now those very same people who Saul was approving of now want to kill Saul. The very same people. I mean, just even to think about the risk that Barnabas took. Barnabas and, and Stephen were, were deacons chosen to go and serve the poor and preach the gospel. They were probably really tight. And Saul laughed when they were killing Barnabas' friend. But he still vouched for him. And so now kind of the tables have been turned and it says, uh, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So it's just, it's just crazy to me that the same group that Saul was a part of now has turned on him because he's a traitor. He betrayed them and everything that they stand for. And he's destroying the nation of Israel and Yahweh their God. And, and, so, and so what... It's interesting what we see so far in the life of Saul. Jesus says to Ananias, he's going to be, he is my instrument to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of God, people of Israel. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer. We're three years into the ministry of Saul, and he's already had two death plots against him. Not death threats, not like a, a letter that can't be really, doesn't really going anywhere, but two literal plots that are in motion to kill him. He's been rejected by a group. He's been rejected by the, the leaders of the early church for a time. He's, he's often running in suffering for the name of Jesus, isn't he? And again, we have to come back to this point and remember how he sees this suffering that he's going through. He says later in his letters, he says, I am so thankful that God has counted me worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. He finds joy and contentment in suffering for the name of Jesus. And, and so here, here they, they basically say, okay, it's been two weeks and already people want to kill you. 
And so the believers say, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna send you back to Tarsus. He was Saul of Tarsus, that's where he came from. We're gonna send you back to friends and family and go take, take the message of Jesus to them and see how it goes there. Maybe it'll go smoother there. But right now with what's going on, we want for your own safety, we want to sh- ship you back to Tarsus. So he goes back to his hometown and stays there for a while and, and he preaches Jesus there. And then there's kind of this summary statement at this point in the book of Acts. In verse 31, it says, so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, which is what Jesus said in Acts, in Acts 1.8, where you're supposed to take the gospel, those very places it's going, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So God is working. There's this general fear and hatred of Saul with a couple exceptions. But he's perceived as a betrayer of his own people. See, here's here's the truth, church. When we go from lost to found, there is a perceived betrayal by the community that we've lived in. Now, for those of you who like grew up in a Christian family, it's a little bit more subtle. But if you came to Christ and you didn't come from a Christian family, I think you know what we're talking about. Because you may be like, tell your dad, I'm following Jesus. And that means I have to live my life completely differently than how maybe you've taught us to live our lives. And that's offensive to me as a dad. So you love Jesus more than me? So you think Jesus' way is better than what I've taught you? Yes. That's a betrayal of your family, isn't it? You've betrayed our family for something that you can't even see. And you've probably also betrayed friends and your community, maybe even your ethnicity, because oftentimes religious belief is embedded in ethnicity. So if a person who's, who's grown up in Iran confesses Jesus, they, they have betrayed not only their people, not only their family, but they've betrayed their, their very ethnicity because now they follow Jesus and are loyal to him. Like I said, for those of us who maybe grew up in a Christian family or in a Christian community, it is much more subtle, but it's still there. See, when we grow in that context, we grow up in a context where we know the Bible and we know Jesus, but it's intermingled with a lot of things that aren't part of the Bible and aren't part of Jesus. And when Jesus starts to reveal that to us and takes us into a deeper place and we start to see these distinctions with maybe what we think is following Jesus and really isn't, our Christian friends say things like, man, you've changed. And really, you've changed is just a nicer and a more polite way of saying you're betraying us. (laughs) You're not where you were and you're now making this uncomfortable. Just like Saul, just like Barnabas. 
Sometimes there's a perception as we grow closer and more intimate with Jesus and obey him that we're betraying even the Christian community sometimes. Because we're seeing that Jesus' values obliterate even the good moral values that we've adhered to for something deeper and greater and more sacrificial. And and so our loyalty and our thinking and our behavior radically changes. Faith in Jesus makes us potential traitors to our people because we will turn their story toward Jesus. They are no longer the center of their story. You see, everyone is the center of their own story. But when you come to follow Christ, Jesus becomes the center of your story. And when we make Jesus the center of our story and other stories, it's difficult because it requires a trade of their life for his life and insists that he alone is the answer that they seek. And it messes everything up. It's a betrayal of epic proportions. How dare you say that I'm not the center of my own story? You see, Jesus himself calls this betrayal death to self. Think about that for a second. When Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me must die to themselves, take up their cross. What Jesus is saying is that if you're going to follow me, you have to betray your own flesh. You have to betray yourself. And my flesh, myself, does not like that. But that's what Jesus calls us to. We not only betray then others into the hands of Jesus. Every time there's a betrayal, you betray people into something, don't you? Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the temple guard. But see, when we betray our family and our communities to follow Jesus, we betray them into the hands of Jesus. That's the best betrayal. When we betray our flesh, we betray our flesh into the clutches of the cross and we crucify it. That's what Jesus says. That's the betrayal that Jesus calls us into. Every single person who wants to follow Jesus is called into that betrayal. And note that this betrayal is not a conquering of other people. It is an inviting them into the life and the light and the joy of a new kingdom and a new king. That's what this betrayal is. You see, the, the big question is this. Actually, let me share something that happened this week. Um, to say how significant this is that, that we live in this way. So I was in Salt Lake City for a couple days this week, and um, I was visiting, I, was, I was, met a friend there, and we were talking some ministry stuff, and, and uh, we, we walked down from the Airbnb that we were at, um, down this big hill. We were up just past, up this hill um, by the Capitol, and um, we walked down from our house, and we went past the Capitol, and then there's Temple Square, which is the kind of Mecca for the Mormon church. And it's where the, the big temples uh, built and, and there's this temple square. It's, it's a decent chunk of landscape there in, in downtown, right, right in front of the Capitol. And 
So we went and we, we, sp- we literally spent about six hours at Temple Square talking with different duos of people. Um, in, in the Mormon church, when you're graduated from high school to maybe 25, you, are, you embark on a mission. Boys go on their mission. They serve their mission for two years. Girls serve their mission for 18 months. The church actually determines where you go to serve this mission. So the, the younger guys who are riding around Modesto and you know the white shirts and the black pants and black ties, those are most likely Mormon missionaries in that age group who've been chosen and sent by the church to Modesto to carry out their two-year mission. On, on the Temple Square, though, only girls are chosen to serve their 18-month mission there. Um, and these, these two girls who uh, gave us the tour, the first couple that we met, these two girls, they were on their mission and they were chosen and sent to Temple Square. And, and, and the one gal said, yeah, um, they only send women to these missions because um, we feel like women are more welcoming and maybe people would be less argumentative and we're just, we're just nicer than seeing a guy maybe come out to give you a tour and that, that just, so they said, so, so they only assign, the church only assigns girls to that. And so Jeff and I were in this tour and, and we actually, it was supposed to be about 40 minutes. We were, it was closer to an hour, an hour and 20 minutes that we were with them. We we're asking lots of questions. We had actually a great time of getting to know these two uh, girls in their early 20s. Um, and they had a great time too. In fact, when, when they finished, um, we realized they had the rest of the day off, but they had gone overtime with us, hanging out with us. And at the end, they wanted to, they did a selfie of the four of us. And took, I don't think that's normal for the, the Mormon missionary tour, but, but um, we had a great time. I mean, these were beautiful in heart young women. And we asked lots of questions and had lots of conversation. And then we went in, after we got done with them, we went into the tabernacle and um, the Mormon tabernacle right there. And, and a couple other girls met us and started chatting. And it's actually really cool because at that point, both Jeff and I got to give our full testimony and shared how we met Jesus and, and what we believe. And, and then we finished there after quite a while of getting to know those two girls and and uh, then we were, we were outside again and we, we, we met two more, two more girls <laughs> and had conversation with them. And so during the six and a half hours, we were in, the, in kind of the, the welcome center area and, and talked with these other two girls. And so we met about six of these girls on mission and we had a great time. And Jeff and I were joking that if Christine Kaufman was there, she would have had all of their phone numbers However, we thought it'd be creepy if we asked, so we didn't ask. Um, so, but what was, what was, why? I mean, we got, we got to share things and, and I feel like God was just doing really cool things in those moments. I, I feel like I, I experienced some wavering with, with a couple of the girls. In fact, at one point when the, the two girls who were giving us the tour initially, um, they were telling us the story of Joseph Smith and, and how when Jesus established the church in Acts in the New Testament, 
that once Jesus left, what happened was the true church disappeared because they went off base. And it wasn't until Joseph Smith here in, 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 in the US got this revelation from God to restore the true church. So basically from Acts to, to, to the Mormon church, there was no true church of Jesus. And so he had to restore it. And so they kind of told that story and, and, and I kind of thought about it a little bit. And so that was kind of the beginning of the tour. And then when we were standing together in this chapel, and hanging out and making jokes. And honestly, we're having a great time. I said, hey, you know, I have, I have one question that I've been thinking about since you said it. I said, you talked about the dark time in the, in the church and there's no true, true church. And it, it took, you know, I mean, hundreds of years for the true church to be restored. And I said, um, in, in the gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, he said, hey, I'm gonna leave you. He said, but it's going to be better that I leave you. Because if I don't leave you, then the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit won't come. And it's gonna be better for you when the Holy Spirit comes. Because he will guide you and lead you into all truth. And I said, I just, what you said feels like it contradicts Jesus. And so I guess my question is, did Jesus make a mistake? And did the Holy Spirit fail for these hundreds of dark years when there was no true church. And the one girl goes, huh. She just kind of looked. And the other girl, I think, covered their tracks and she kind of gave the pat answer and said, well, people don't always, we don't always obey the Spirit. That's not really an answer to the question, is it? And so I, I felt like God was doing some things and planted some scenes and I'm, really hopeful for Brianna is the name of the girl who, when Jeff was giving his testimony in the tabernacle, one of the girls, Emmeline, who was listening to him, had tears in her eyes listening to Jeff's testimony. She's also dating a, she's from South Dakota and she's dating a guy who's an evangelical Christian in Rapid City waiting at home for him. So I'm like, I think there's hope. But as Jeff and I were leaving the Temple Square and walking back up the hill, just this weight came over me and a realization. All of these girls that we had talked to talked about Jesus with affection and love. And what hit me as we were walking up the hill was when they see Jesus face to face, they're gonna be like, we're so excited to see you, Jesus. We've lived our whole life for you. And Jesus is gonna say, I don't know who you are. And that kills me. Because every one of those six girls that we met were incredibly beautiful young women. And they think that they know Jesus. They're far from him. That's why it is so, so vital that we don't live our lives on pilot light, but that the Spirit is unleashed in our lives to change the environments around us. I'll be honest, I didn't want to be at the Temple Square for six hours on Thursday. We were there till three o'clock and I had eaten nothing. I was hungry. 
But man, the spirit was moving. And I was functioning on more than the pilot light. See, the question I think we have to ask ourselves as we're confronted by scripture this morning is this. Does our faith clearly communicate that we are loyal to the kingdom of God and that we obey Jesus? Or is our faith non-threatening to ourselves, our flesh, and to those around us? And I'm not saying that it's a distinction of whether or not you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. I think I'm asking the question is, are you functioning with a pilot light? Have you ripped off the thermostat and let the, let the thing go? Because you see, if, if my faith is not threatening to the life and thinking and behavior to the world around me, that I don't know that I'm living in the spirit. I don't know that I'm walking in the spirit. If my faith is not disruptive to other believers, who are half living for Jesus and half not, then I don't know that I'm really living full of the Spirit. If I'm not, or I have never been seen or perceived as, as a betrayer of the values of this world and even the sleepy values of sometimes the church, I don't know that I'm living in the power and the fullness of the Spirit. So that's a question you have to ask yourself today. When you walk into the room, do you change the temperature? Because you can't help but infect your environment. Or when you walk into the room, is it a non-event? I'm so thankful that last Thursday, I affected the temperature at Temple Square. Where are you gonna go today that you're either gonna not affect the temperature at all in the rooms that you go in or that you're gonna radically alter and you might suffer for it, but you're gonna change the environment. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and I thank you so much. God, I pray right now for those people here and maybe abroad who who realize that they are at a crossroads that they have to betray first themselves. They have to set themselves aside and choose to follow you. I, I pray, Jesus, that you would meet them where they're at. I pray for those people, maybe who are here, maybe who aren't, who maybe are in the struggle of recognizing their need for forgiveness. And God, I pray for those of us who have lived so comfortably with the pilot light of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we're saved, that we're secure, that we have a future, but we haven't changed the temperature or the environment of anyone in our lives. I pray that we would make a choice to live in the fullness of the Spirit, not just for our own benefit, but for the salvation of others. God, I pray for Brianna and Emma Lynn this morning. 
I pray for their salvation. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. That Jesus, you would show your face. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us and calling us to betray people into your arms. God, we don't betray people around us to hurt them or to win an argument or to be right. But we want them in your arms. The only sure and secure arms there are. So Jesus, I pray that you would change us so that where we walk into the grocery store or a classroom or school or our own homes, when we come to church, that we would affect the environment because of what's raging inside of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.